0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live.
1: Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David J. Lynch, global economics correspondent here at The Post. Today, we have two segments on American innovation and the future of work. First, I'll be joined by Representative Ro Khanna, Democrat from Silicon Valley, and then MIT President Rafael Reif. So be sure to stick around for both conversations. Now, Congressman Kana, welcome back to Washington Post Live.
0: Thank you. I appreciate you having me. And uh, I have so much admiration for Raphael Reif. So uh, I, I'm sure your audience will have a, a great uh, discussion with him as well.
1: Great. Well, I want to start with a major piece of legislation that President Biden signed back in August, the Chips and Science Act, uh, which, as you know, provides 52 billion dollars in federal subsidies for domestic semiconductor production. And I wonder, how did we end up in a place where such a quintessentially American industry requires such massive federal support? Does this represent or reflect uh, a failure of American trade policy, our approach to globalization, insufficient uh, government investment in technology over the years, or all of the above?
0: All of the above. I uh, was proud to uh, co-author the Chips and Science Act with Senator Schumer, Representative Gallagher and uh, Todd Young. It started out as the Analyst frontiers, but we made a strategic mistake in this country. And that is we said that manufacturing was somehow dirty, production didn't matter. Andy Grove warned about this in 2010. Uh, people can look at his Businessweek article saying, how can you just let all the jobs Uh, Leave that if the production leaves, the innovation will leave as well. We didn't invent the automobile, we mass produced it in America. We didn't invent the jet engine, we mass produced it in America. That's what made us an economy. We did invent the semiconductor chip, we did invent the solar panel, and we said the production didn't matter. Uh, This was 50 years of misguided thinking. Uh, And the reality is we should care about production in America. Uh, Some of the trade agreements uh, had uh, negative consequences uh they but the fact was that we were not uh, building uh in our industrial capacity that requires government partnership in workforce and uh with industry uh to provide them often with financing that other countries were providing uh to have the production offshore uh and of course there should be public standards where they're not stock buybacks and uh workers are treated well uh, but we just did not have any of that policy we thought let the markets uh, do what they want and let uh, globalization uh, run its course, uh, that, in my view, was a mistake.
1: Now, some of the corporate investment announcements uh, that have come in response to the CHIPS Act are are truly eye-catching. Intel Uh, has said it'll spend $20 billion to develop a new facility outside Columbus, Ohio. IBM is going to spend $20 billion uh, up in the Hudson Valley in New York. Micron, yet another $20 billion program uh, also in New York. Tens of thousands of good paying jobs promised, uh, although many uh, won't materialize for several years. Uh, I wonder how how confident are you that all of these plans and uh, Uh, projects will actually uh, come to life or bear fruit to the scale that that they're being described uh, as doing today?
0: If we do our job well, they should. I mean, a lot depends on uh, the Commerce Department and they have good people there. Uh, A lot depends on making sure that they're collaborating uh, with uh, the private sector, collaborating with local universities, investing in workforce, uh, making sure we have a uh, rational immigration policy. Some of the people we need are in Taiwan and other parts of the, the world to re, uh, revitalize our, our, our industries. Uh, but I, I believe directionally it will come together. Now, the problem is that you know China, as Eric Schmidt says, does one of these chip sacks every year. Uh, we have sort of an ad hoc approach. It took Schumer, myself, Uh, Todd Young, three years to get this across the finish line over the course of two different presidencies. uh, We need, and we just did it on semiconductors. What about all of the other industries in America? Steel, where we've gone from 20% to 5%. uh, Aluminum, where we've gone from 37% to 2%. Graphite, where we make zero uh, basically hair. Uh, You could go industry after industry, uh, where we're not doing much to uh, be in competition for the next generation of production. Uh, so we need a much more uh, comprehensive approach uh, to the development of new industry, factories, jobs, making things here uh, in uh, the next uh, decade.
1: Yeah, I, I want to talk about uh, the extent to which this can be applied to, to other industries in a moment, but I also want to ask you about another provision of the legislation which uh, establishes uh, regional technology hubs, uh, in parts of the country that haven't traditionally been thought of as tech uh, hotbeds. And uh, this idea has, has obvious appeal, uh, but I also wonder whether it's vulnerable to sort of traditional pork barrel politics in terms of choosing the, the locations for these sites. Um, how confident are you that, or how do we make sure that these new centers uh, can actually stand on their own, uh, and and will pay off in in a uh, in a genuine way. And and can we really replicate the sort of Silicon Valley uh, success model just by having the government write checks?
0: Certainly, no to the latter. Nor nor do we want to replicate Silicon Valley everywhere. Nor does everyone want to become Silicon Valley. Uh, the uh, but the reality is we can create a massive production uh clusters on robotics on uh automobile supplies on electric vehicles on batteries on clean energy in different parts of the country uh and different parts of the country may have different assets in uh what they want to emerge uh, as and they don't all have to be quote unquote high tech you can't put a semiconductor fab everywhere but they may be new manufacturing processes uh, for making old things better, ways of making refrigerators and uh, dishwashers and uh, and and uh, uh, car parts. Uh, so I do think it can emerge. Now, on your question of should it be can it be free of politics, uh, we, what I would say is members of Congress like me should have no say in it. Neither should senators, and it needs to be an independent process. Commerce is going to be doing a lot of it. I don't think ideally that's sufficient. Uh, Senator Rubio and I have been working on a bill to create an economic development council with different agencies, the private sector, uh, to really work with local and state governments to to be more strategic in how we develop these uh, types of uh, industries across America. But at the very least, with the system we have now, we need commerce to implement it in a way that is uh, apolitical, uh, and I'm hopeful they will.
1: You mentioned earlier that we've uh, spent the last several decades really letting the market uh, sort out these questions of where manufacturing uh, and other activities should take place. We're we're clearly now in in an environment where uh, members of both parties seem more comfortable with the government playing a more active role in directing economic activity. Uh, Industrial policy used to be an insult. Uh, Now it's become a shared objective. Uh, but I wonder how you distinguish or where you draw the line in separating legitimate government uh, functions designed to spur innovation and, and sort of create opportunity uh, for new ventures across the country and uh, inappropriate, uh, wasteful government largesse. Today, it's Semiconductors. Uh, But you've mentioned several other uh, industries already today, and and you could, I think, expect to see a lot of industries lining up uh, on Capitol Hill with their hands out.
0: Well, I don't think uh, we have to reinvent the wheel. We just need to look at what Alexander Hamilton said and how FDR developed uh, America to be the most productive economy. And the way it developed was a partnership uh, with the private sector, uh, with government purchasing, government financing, uh, and investment in people, in education, and in workforce development. And that partnership, I think we should do across geographies, across industries, uh, in in developing America. Now, how do we make sure that it's not just a handout? We make sure that there are public standards, that uh, corporations that uh, get financing or businesses that get financing uh, are paying a, a a fair wage that they aren't using that money just to uh, enrich uh, uh, shareholders that uh, they are uh, have some differential in terms of their corporate uh, CEO salary and worker salary, but I believe that we can uh, through that such a economic development council I call it a new economic patriotism uh, actually have. Industry across America: new masks, build masks here, make more baby formula here, make the thick steel here that's going to be needed for windmills, make graphite here that's going to be needed for electric cars, and, and we should be more intentional about it.
1: Over over time, won't uh, efforts to promote uh, domestic uh, production uh, inevitably carry an inflationary cost to it? And perhaps it's a cost that folks would be willing to bear, but presumably the most cost effective uh, situation or setup is is what we've got and if you if you add additional requirements to uh, buy american-made products or to make things here at the expense uh, of uh, of uh, overseas locales that is going to cost more isn't it
0: Not necessarily. I mean, if you look at Germany as a model uh, where they ran trade surpluses, our last trade surplus was in 1975. Now, we have a stronger dollar and we can get into uh, what we need to do in terms of the dollar uh, being a reserve currency. But Germany uh, managed to have uh, much less of a decline in manufacturing, much more stable, almost 25 percent manufacturing uh, work base because they invested in productivity. Uh, And our workforce is productive, and I believe the advantages of productivity, uh, coupled with the savings from uh, the risks, particularly in the geopolitical world we face, uh, coupled with the risk savings of shipping costs, uh, can make it uh, productive here. So if you're bringing back manufacturing, if inflation is just too much money chasing too few goods and you're adding uh, to the goods, Uh, then that can actually be deflationary. The question is really, are you adding to the goods uh, in a way that is more than if you were adding to the goods from imports? And a lot of that is uh, a question of productivity. uh, And that's why I'm arguing that what we should be bringing back is manufacturing where we either have high technology uh, focus like semiconductors or productivity advantages because of new processes.
1: Now we we've heard a lot about China in the in the context of of the Chips Act as a, as a motivation for uh, for making these investments. How how do you assess the overall technological balance between the U.S. and China? Uh, in in what areas uh, do you worry that we're at greatest risk of of being eclipsed?
0: In production, over across the board. I mean, they uh, are producing more electric vehicles. They're producing almost all the graphite that goes into Batteries. They're producing almost all the lithium. They're producing almost all the cobalt in terms of the processing. Uh, They are producing almost all the solar panels. Now, we still have a lot of the uh, Nobel laureates here. We still have a lot of the advantageous uh, science here. But ultimately, there's innovation in production, and China has been doing that at scale. Well, one World War II was that we outproduced Japan and Germany two to one during World War II. I'm not sure uh, that we have that capacity uh, as a nation right now to massively outproduce other countries. So we need to build our productive capacity. We also need to invest in AI and quantum computing. Uh, we're doing better than China in the private sector there, uh, but our public investments there uh, are lagging China.
1: Now, you mentioned that it took three years to get the the CHIPS Act across the finish line. It was was a heavy lift, even though you you did have support on both sides of the aisle. Uh, Having a foreign threat uh, has always been a good uh, way to argue for for government action. The famous example, as you know, is President Eisenhower uh, selling the interstate highway system as a way to evacuate American cities in the event of, of a nuclear war. Uh, how how important was the specter of Chinese progress in these areas, uh, in an area of, of innovation and technology that I think many Americans sort of do see as as a as a birthright of this country? Uh, w- was that sort of the the key that uh, that allowed this to to finally come together?
0: I I do think it was uh, a significant factor, especially in getting of Republican support, this idea that America wants to remain preeminent, that we want to make sure that we are leading in technology and production. But there was also a recognition, especially after the 2016 election, uh, that uh, something had gone wrong in this country and that the fact that millions of people were deprived of their jobs, that jobs are just shipped offshore uh, because of cheaper labor and corporations searching for uh, lesser environmental standards, that, that that was a problem and that production mattered. So I think the combination of those two uh, led to this bill, which uh, uh, was remarkably bipartisan, probably the most bipartisan thing that has happened under President uh, Biden, and certainly in my six years in Congress.
1: We we also want to talk about the the human dimension of innovation, which uh, involves immigration, education, and also making better use of those who are still on the sidelines of of today's economy. Uh, and that brings us to a question from uh, a reader, uh, Richard Hood, or a member of our audience, I should say, uh, Richard Hood from Florida asks, "How do you engage?" so many men who seem to be disconnected from the economy. Disconnected, I think he means, from the world of work.
0: Well, there's a great book that Richard Reeves has written recently about how one in seven men, uh, between the ages of 25 and 54, prime age men, have basically chosen to opt out of the workforce. And that is uh, quite depressing. And he argues it's the highest we've seen uh, in uh, American uh, modern history. I believe one of the reasons of that was deindustrialization, that people's communities were destroyed, their plants moved offshore, uh, they uh, lost a lot of pride. Uh, and so there are m- multiple causes, and I uh, certainly wouldn't uh, uh, say that uh, I have a silver bullet, but I do think if we bring back production, if we are focused on uh, making things in uh, our country again, uh, and if we're focused on uh, investing in uh, our workforce, uh, that we can make progress uh, in getting communities revitalized and getting people back into the workforce.
1: There's there's also already been some talk that these new semiconductor facilities may encounter a shortage of uh, engineers or the highly trained specialists that they're going to need uh, for this work, particularly in specific communities. Uh, how concerning is that prospect? And and does government have a role in uh, trying to, to encourage the development of more people to fill those jobs? Or are you confident the market will uh, take care of that part of the picture?
0: No, we need uh, education in this country. Look, China's going to have twice the number of college graduates as, as us by 2040. It uh, should be a wake-up call. You can't have in this country... Uh, uh, pit blue-collar workers against PhDs. Uh, Columbus, Ohio showed to get 7,000 blue-collar jobs in construction and manufacturing, you need the PhDs, you need the uh, the, the BAs as well. And that's why we need to have a massive investment uh, in education in this country, uh, for STEM education, certainly, but make, lowering uh, the costs of college. I've been for free public college for that reason, uh, having land-grant universities have programs with private industry, uh, and incentivizing people uh, to go into engineering and, uh, and, and, and manufact- electrical and, and manufacturing uh, fields. And so uh, that has to be a huge priority. The, the lesson, you know, if I can make some a comment that is uh, slightly uh, partisan, uh, you know, Trump talked about bringing all these factories back, but the reality is just giving corporate tax cuts and deregulation, isn't gonna bring new factories. It's much harder than that. It requires financing. It requires government purchasing. It requires uh, a developed uh, workforce. uh, And uh, that's why I look to Hamilton and FDR, who were actually able uh, to bring many new factories to America.
1: Now, of course, There's plenty of talent outside the United States as well, and and you know coming from Silicon Valley just how important immigrants have been to development of some of our greatest technological success stories. But we've made it harder for immigrants uh, to come into the country in in recent years. Chinese students who used to fill the ranks of many of our top universities are not coming uh, in the same numbers as relations between the U.S. and China have soured. What would you like to see happen in immigration? And given the fact that this uh, issue has, has been blocked on Capitol Hill Indefinitely, is there any prospect of reaching some sort of sensible compromise that would allow us to get access to the technology or to the uh, competencies uh, that we need and still satisfy those who are concerned about the border?
0: Well, my parents were immigrants and beneficiaries in part of Sputnik, uh, where uh, after Sputnik and the Soviets beat us to have the first satellite in space, uh, our country said we needed. Uh, engineers from any part of the world, and after the sixty five immigration Act, many Indian Americans, including my parents, came here, my father came here to to study engineering at uh, the University of Michigan. So I obviously believe uh, that immigrants are uh, critical to America's sense of innovation, to our sense of uh, comparative advantage with the rest of the world. What I would say is that we should link the immigration with massive investment. Uh, in our own land-grant universities, in our own educational institutions, so that uh, we are also uh, giving people born in America uh, the uh, tools and opportunities uh, to become the engineers and scientists, and that it's not an either or, uh, but collaborative. And I would invest in uh, border security, but also have some program for people uh, to come uh, a- a- across the border in an orderly way Uh, to work here. And George W. Bush started a proposal of guest workers. I would have it uh, be more permanent as the Lofgren bill in the House, which we passed is. Uh, But there are the elements to uh, come to a compromise. Uh, It's the politics that have unfortunately uh, not made that possible for the last 30 years.
1: Okay, well, unfortunately, that, uh, that takes care of the time we have. I'm sure we could, we could go on all, all afternoon, uh, but uh, we are out of time. We're going to have to wrap up. Uh, Congressman, thanks uh, very much for joining us today. We, uh, we're grateful for your time.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
1: And up next, we'll hear from MIT President Raphael Reif.
0: The following segment was produced and paid for by Washington Post Live event sponsors. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content.
2: Hi, I'm Kathleen Koch. They say change is the one constant in life. Well, that applies in the workplace, too. But as disruptive as uncertainty can be, new research by Adobe has found that it can also have benefits. We're here to talk with me about that today is Todd Gerber. Todd is vice president of Adobe Document Cloud. Welcome, Todd.
3: Thanks, Kathleen. Great to be here.
2: Todd, Adobe just released its second annual Future of Time study, and I had a chance to read it and I found it so fascinating. In particular, I was surprised to see how much concerns about things like uh, economic stability, COVID-19, or even climate change are impacting people's work experience. Tell us about what you learned.
3: Sure thing. There are a couple of things that we wanted to dive into in this particular study. Uh, we looked at productivity, work culture, and innovation. And a couple of things that really popped out were that changes the new constant in the workplace. I mean, you need to know, look no further than the news to see that every day there's some, you know, there's wars, there's weather, there's winds blowing of recession and, and the like. The top two things that we saw pop out from a uh, Economic uh, instability and inflation were the key concerns that um, employees and managers both cited. And the other thing that was really surprising was that both managers and employees, um, despite those distractions, found that work itself is a place of solace, uh, a safe harbor, if you will, in these times of uncertainty.
2: Very interesting. So being at work really is helping people get through the, these, the difficult times we're in.
3: That's right. And I think part of it is it does provide a forum um, to talk with your peers um, and leadership. Um, I know during the pandemic, we didn't just jump right into a meeting. There was always a little bit of a informal wellness check of how's, how are things, how, uh, what's going on in your life um, before we would dive in when everything was 100% virtual. And I think that spirit of that really has continued now that we're in a more hybrid state um, with people both virtual and in, in the office.
2: Well, it's great to see that that is bringing people together. Uh, today's event is focusing on the pace of innovation. Uh, how would you say that the the uncertainty that we just discussed, how did the survey found, find that that is affecting the way that companies innovate?
3: Well, it's definitely connected. In times of uncertainty, it forces certain choices and, and to reevaluate how how and And the ways in which you're getting the work done itself. Um, Collaboration in particular is one that comes to mind. Um, We didn't all used to be on a video screen like we're doing this conversation. um, We would be in a, a physical room in most cases, and a handful of people would be on on the phone now now it's a very connected integrated experience where whether you're physically in the office or um, somewhere else in the world that we have the same types of tools um, regardless of where you are and it makes uh, connecting and collaborating a lot easier i think the other thing too that we found is that employees really value um, their organizations that have invested in digital solutions particularly because they experience a better work-life balance now you Don't need to take that call from the car in the morning. You can um, take that from home, um, make sure that you still get the kids off to to daycare, if you will, um, and then come into the office um, if that suits you at a later point in time and not miss out on the types of conversations or the decision making that is happening um, in an ever increasing faster pace.
2: It does sound like companies are are investing more in digital digitalization because I I read in the survey that that over seventy percent of employees felt that they were uh, you know getting support in in that way from from their company support that they needed.
3: That's right, and digitization has been a longstanding item on a list of many uh, IT and chief digital officer type initiatives, but in you know, the last couple of years, really accelerated the pace of that um, and prioritization of that. You know, everything from experiences like employee onboarding to um, filling out forms with a bank, um, all of that, if you think back not that long ago, might have been very paper intensive and, and required physical signatures. Digitization takes that and makes it 100 percent electronic. You know, it's an auditable workflow and oftentimes things that would take, you know, hours or days um, now is mere minutes um, when you when you take it to a digital type process.
2: Let's talk a little bit about productivity. What can companies do to help employees when they're having a hard time focusing? Uh, Again, at the start of this, we discussed how people are really being distracted by all the the breaking news, all this uncertainty. And I do think we've all experienced it. This just feels like one of the big challenges of hybrid work today.
3: It it sure is. And I think one of the first important steps is having that authentic conversation with your um, management team and your employee base. What problems are you trying to solve? Is it collaboration? Is it the way in which you're co-authoring, say, a document? And so understanding what the core needs are. Like productivity might be defined very differently from organization to organization. And I think you need to have that overall um, alignment on you know what are the types of problems that you're solving so that you can evaluate the best uh, set of tools that are going to be best Best suited to meeting those respective needs. And then test things out. I think the great thing about this age in which we live in is that there are a lot of options and, and it's easy to try and experiment and you know, get real-time feedback and adapt along the way. Um, and given that change is the new constant, I think we'll continue to see a lot more of that testing and iteration type mindset um, um, in the workplace as well.
2: One final takeaway, what would you say is the most important one from the survey?
3: I think one of the key ones is really having a supportive environment um, between management team and employee, um, having those authentic conversations uh, to be able to have uh, a clear understanding of what the, what the concerns of the day are, provide space for that, and, um, and a technology environment that helps, helps people be their best selves and getting their personal and professional work done.
2: Great, Todd Gerber, Vice President of Adobe Document Cloud, thanks so much for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
2: And now I'll hand it back over to The Washington Post.
3: And now, back to Washington Post Live.
1: Welcome back, and for those of you just joining us, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David J. Lynch, global economics correspondent here at The Post. I'm joined now by Raphael Reif, President of MIT, an institution that's right on the forefront of science, technology, and innovation. President Reif, welcome.
4: Thank you, David. Welcome. Thank you for, for uh, inviting me here. And I, uh, I'm, I'm delighted to be uh, part of a segment with Rep- 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 Representative Rocana, who has been such a great supporter for the innovation uh, ecosystem that we want to establish and reestablish at MIT and in, in the country.
1: Well, we're, we're thrilled to have you with us. I I want to go right to a question from a member of our audience, uh, Stephen Toll from Florida, who says some commentators claim that innovation in the United States has stalled since the turn of the century. A claim, Stephen says, that's supported by the woeful state of productivity improvement in the country. What's your take on this assessment? Is, Is the U.S. still innovating the way it once did?
4: Well, yes, the U.S. is still innovating the way it once did. Uh, The problem is that the way it once did is not good enough now. So we're still innovating. We're still doing very well. uh, But the environment, the ecosystem, the global ecosystem is much more competitive. Others are doing very, very well. Others are catching up or running ahead of us. And we just have to reassess our innovation ecosystem to figure out how to fine tune it to adapt to this new reality.
1: And so, how would you describe the formula or the recipe for innovation that the US used in the past, perhaps uh, at its heyday in the, the 50s, 60s, 70s, whatever period you'd like to choose? How would you describe sort of the classic formula by which the US developed the innovations that led the world?
4: Well, the classic formula really started, uh, I would say, after World War II, by the way. Uh, But it's very simple, and it's a formula that other countries are also uh, uh, trying to to copy from us. First of all, you have to start with supporting uh, basic science, basic science research. I mean, advancing knowledge is critical. Without advancing knowledge, the more knowledge we have, the more tools we have to advance technologies and do innovation. So supporting for basic science is critical. As a result of that, uh, again, Creative people in this country develop new technologies, and once you have new technologies, not every scientist will develop new technologies, but eventually they all uh, engage and, and and contribute to develop new technologies. And then once you have new technologies, you have new tools to create to innovate. Uh, you can you can innovate without Uber, you can innovate with Google or search engines. We can innovate with an iPhone. It all is based on existing technologies at the time, which was based from science that was created develop, developed before. So science is the foundation of everything. Advancing knowledge is key. The US has been very good at it. Then comes technology development as a result of the advancement of knowledge. And then you leave the technologies to clever people to come up with innovative ways, clever ways to use technologies to create new markets. That has been the model uh, for the last 70-some years. And that model still works. The only problem is that it does not move as fast as we need to move right now to be competitive with some other countries who are doing very well.
1: And, and so where did we go wrong? That, that model, as you, say, as you describe it, was fantastically successful uh, over, over the years. Was there a particular turning point that, that caused things to go in the wrong direction? How did we take our eye off the ball as a, as a country?
4: Yeah, we did not go wrong, it's that others are doing much better. I mean, we have competitors now. We used to have the whole field for ourselves. It was a racetrack in which the only race was us. So we raced and we won. Right now there are other uh, race, uh, companies, countries racing with us and that's the issue. I think I think, if you believe by simplified model that we have to advance science and then from that we, comes with, we come up with new technologies and from that we come to innovation, what we need to do is do that even better so advanced knowledge uh, well that comes with research funding we need to do more of that uh and then we need to do more of the kind of advances of knowledge that can produce new technologies and that is uh we, you know we talk about science as as uh, as discovery science curiosity driven and that has been traditionally what much of the federal funding of research does and has been doing for years. Not all of it, but a good chunk of it. So curiosity-driven science is a very good thing. We need more of that. But the goal in a competitive environment is to come up with technologies. As I said, some of the science in the near term produce technologies, some will produce technologies much later. We need to move that a little bit faster. For that, we need, in addition to discovery science, curiosity-driven, we need to do what I call or we call, in the scientific circles, use inspired science. So science, which is driven for a purpose, science that's driven to develop new technologies. That is the part that we need to do more of. In fact, that is the kind of science that we had in the, in the in 1940s, mid-1940s at Bell Laboratories that produced a semiconductor that is the the parent of everything we are doing today in electronics and photonics and just about every product we use today, the chips, all we're talking about comes from that youth-inspired science of the 1940s, late 1940s. So I think we need to go back to doing more of that not to stop doing discovery science. That is extremely important. That's the matter of all development of creative creation of knowledge. But we need to do more use inspired basic science so that we can move more of the research of science into advancing knowledge into technologies. That's the first element, the first part of the, uh, of the ecosystem we have to tinker with. And in fact, the science part of the Chips and Science Act is actually driven. The whole idea of that is to address youth-inspired uh, basic science research. And that is what Rep. Representative Ro also pushed uh, in, in the House with what we call the Endless Frontier Act, which is to focus what ended up being the science part of the Chips and Science Act.
1: I think many Americans have, have, all, have also seen that, uh, uh, a link between uh, the ability to innovate and the nature of a society, free or controlled, uh, and have believed that over time, free societies, democratic societies will inevitably do better because people are, are allowed to pursue uh, th- their research and their innovations uh, no matter whose uh, ox gets gored or no matter what a government leader might think. Uh, and in that light, I, I wanna ask you whether that's at all naive or whether it, it remains the case. Uh, and second, how you would assess the current technological balance between the u s and china, uh, and where is uh, where is the u s most at risk of being overtaken uh, by Chinese specialists?
4: Well, i think uh, uh, I think yes, I agree that a free society will produce more innovation and and i i, I that, I, I don't know that I can tell you I've done experiments with that and I know the results and I know that I'm right, but I think evidence, historical evidence has shown that that is the case and I strongly believe that that is the case. So I think that I don't have any issues with that statement. I fully agree with that. Uh, so in the long run, if, uh, if the countries that want to compete with us, they want to compete with us by having con- central control of what they do, I think at the end of the day, the US, the system of just be a, a little more open and, 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 and more liberal in terms of research, will win. That's my strong belief in that. Uh, in terms of technology, look, there are some areas. Uh, countries like China are focused on advancing some technological areas. They are focusing on, on, on advancing, whether it's chief manufacturing or whether it's communications, 5G communications. They focus on addressing whether it's speech processing. They focus on those areas. So because they are so focused in some of those areas, they are, I would argue, even ahead of us. Uh, but I think that is because they are particularly focused. I think in general, uh, in general, we are, the US as a, as a whole is ahead of them. Let me just give you an example of something that, that I heard. I was in a hosted at a dinner event, it must have been like six years ago, seven years ago in, in, in China, in Beijing. And there were, at the time, captains of the industry uh, being there at the dinner, and I was a kind of their guest. and uh, And they said two things to me at that dinner. They said, when it comes to scale, The U.S. cannot compete with us. We're going to beat them every time because we have much more market, much more. In terms of scale, we're going to we we know how to do that much better than the U.S. And I felt, boy, that's pretty arrogant. But, you know, I guess that's true. And then they said right away after that, they said, but when it comes to innovation, when it comes to creativity, we will never beat the U.S. And I said, hey, wait a minute. How come you said to me you were so arrogant on the first half and so humble on the second half? How do I exp- how you explain that? And they, they said, because the US is heterogeneous. You bring the best brains for the whole world that come with different ways, different ways of thinking and come with new ideas. We are much more homogeneous. Uh, this is them telling me. So even they believe that when it comes to being very creative, very innovative, the US will always be ahead. I think the question is, that is a fact. We recognize that, they recognize that. So how do we take advantage of that fact? And that's the key issue here.
1: Well, in, in that regard, tell me a little bit about turning innovations, scientific breakthroughs and the like into marketable products that people can benefit from uh, in their daily life. I think you have some experience with that at MIT uh, through something called the engine. Uh, how does it work?
4: Well, it's working very well, but that is the other thats the other uh, fine-tuning that we need to do in our ecosystem. Uh, the first fine-tuning that I'm suggesting is that we need to continue to advance uh, and to have federal support and, and all sorts of support for basic science, for basic research, for advancing knowledge, but all of it cannot be just discovery. Curiosity. We have to do use inspired as well. That's one fine tuning that I would like us to do, and that's what the Science Act, the science part of the Chips and Science Act, hopefully will address. The second issue is exactly the point you made. So, okay, you have from uh, advancing knowledge from science, you have technologies. From technologies, you start innovating. Well, in our ecosystem, the way America works, uh, y- you 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 can innovate. Uh, In the software space, in the digital space, you can innovate products that you know very early. Investors can tell very early that they will be very successful or they will fail and they can just cut the funding off. Uh, So it's it's a much faster way to get a return on investment. And that that produces all these large companies that we have today uh, that we invest so, uh, uh, so heavily and so successfully. But there is this other kind of investment Based on new science, based on new technology, that society needs. That society needs to address climate change, to address a variety of issues. Things that are not just digital. Things that you have to build, whether it's a, a, a you know, a, a, a new way of creating energy, like fusion, fusion energy, or a new storage device. Things that you need to build based on new technology. Those take time, and and by and large. Our market economy doesn't have the patience to invest in products that take time to develop, even though society may need them. And I think that's the other area in which we have to fine tune. I saw that years ago. I saw that many of the ideas coming out of this place and other places like this one, like MIT, they could do wonders for society. They would not get the venture funding because they would take too long to develop. You, if you have money to invest, you put it in areas in which you're going to get a quick return of the investment. Why, why invest on something which may take 10 years? Society needs them, but you want to invest on in what can give you a very fast return. So, the engine that we created here was to address that, what I call a market failure, to address companies uh, that, that are going to produce products that we need them in society but that the capital system, the risk capital of today or, or, or the five years ago, even today, is not willing to invest heavily on them because there are other avenues in which they can get a return faster. That's what the engine was created. I wanted not just for those products to reach the marketplace. I want the young, the young uh, people here at MIT and other universities to see that their ideas could, that can change the world, change society, and improve uh, standards of living. They can find a way to the marketplace, as opposed to being filed away. Uh, that was the heart of it. The, the engine is funded. It's another. It's funded by private capital. It's are investors that want a return of their investment, but they can be patient. They don't want it in three years or five years. They could wait ten years. That is the other part of our ecosystem that I think needs a little bit more attention to.
1: Interesting. I want to ask you about the the partial decoupling that we're seeing between the U.S. and China, most notably in in the technology arena, Uh, barriers going up uh, just this week to uh, the sale of sophisticated semiconductor equipment uh, to the Chinese. U.S. and Chinese scientists working together in recent decades have collaborated uh, on a lot of important uh, work. Uh, what what sort of impact will the separation of these uh, two countries into different realms, if you will, uh, how much of an impact do you think that's gonna have on our ability to innovate and innovation globally?
4: Well, time will tell, but, but in, in, my, in my, uh, my view, it's gonna hurt both countries. Uh, of course, China needs uh, this kind of uh, uh, products for them to advance faster, and, um, and, but we also need to sell these products so we can continue to innovate. So uh, I think uh, you know, it, 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 it remains to be seen. I understand the policy. I understand some of the reasons and, for doing it, uh, but I'm afraid that, that I don't know which country gonna hurt the most because for us to advance our technology, for us to keep producing the next generations of technology, and we've been doing that for decades, uh, we need to sell the products for, to customers that want to buy them. So, so that, that I'm actually concerned about the impact of that to our own economy, to our, to our country, and to our own technology development.
1: And I'm, I'm curious, I want to ask you in the time we have left about one specific area of innovation, which deals with the climate crisis, um, as every year goes by, we're sort of missing a chance to do something uh, about greenhouse gases. Can we innovate our way out of climate change?
4: I'm certain we can innovate a way out of climate. I'm certain of that. We have in the engine, you mentioned that earlier, David, there are 38 companies supported uh, and uh, 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 the, the uh, uh, a large number of them uh, are, are uh, basically in the climate space. So I think we can innovate through it, but then we have to believe in that and we have to, we have to support them. I mean, I've been saying for a while that, that we need to advance on two separate tracks to address climate change. One is we have technologies right now. We have renewables. We have solar and we have wind. Uh, we need to figure out how to employ them as fast as possible. And 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 introduce them to the market as and as affordable as possible. That is necessary, and that is doable if we are committed to it. But that alone will not get us to zero carbon by 2050, which we have to get there. So we need to we need the track two, which is basically advance these technologies and get them to the marketplace as soon as possible. That will take a little longer. But but if track one can move very fast as we should, track two can take a little longer and we still can get there by 2050. So can we innovate a way? Yes, we can, but we just have to do the, the three elements that I talked about. We have to do the basic science. We have to let that basic science lead to technologies and then let the technology lead to innovation. That has worked always in this country. We just have to fine-tune that a little bit more, a little bit further for this to work this time around as well.
1: Interesting. We're we're coming up uh, just against a a hard stop here, but I I did want to ask you, I understand you're retiring uh, as president of MIT at the end of the year. Uh, What's next for you?
4: Boy, that means another half an hour. I I think, uh, uh, number one, calendar 23, I mean, I'm staying in my job until the end of calendar 22. Calendar 23, I'm going to take a sabbatical. Uh, and, then, and then most likely, calendar 24, I'll get back to MIT. I think uh, I want to use my sabbatical to figure out I've been enjoying myself uh, while at the same time uh, driving MIT to be the place it wants to be, which is the place where good things for the world happen. Uh, now I have to learn in 23 how to do that without, without doing it with MIT, but doing it on my own. Lots for me to think about. Uh, so maybe, maybe, maybe a year from now we can talk about this.
1: Fair enough. Uh, Well, Raphael Reif, thanks very much for your time today. A very interesting conversation. I wish we had more time for it, but uh, thanks for uh, stopping by.
0: Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.